Welcome to the At The Coalface podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. This podcast is all about what it's really like in the trenches of digital and e-commerce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the pod. I have an absolute treat for you today. I have A.D. Pinar. And he is actually, you, you guys are probably going to know him from the background that we're going to talk about very shortly, but he is the founder of a relatively new platform called Cogsy. So welcome, AD, to the podcast. Jason, thanks so much for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure, my friend. Now, are you, I, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile when we connected on LinkedIn, Cogsy, you say it's based in London, but I think as far as I can tell, you're originally from SA, South Africa, aren't you? Yes, so I'm still in Cape Town, born and bred. I live about 45 minutes outside of the city center with my fam in the Winelands, combining two things I really love there. And yes, Cogsy is indeed a UK corporation, and we are remote and distributed team, first and foremost. Love it, love it. Now, where the audience may know you from is this tiny little tech platform, and I say that very much tongue firmly in cheek. <laughs> called WooCommerce, and I'm sure you're totally sick and tired of telling this story, but it's we can't really get into the discussion about Cogsy without talking about WooCommerce first, can we? Yeah, I yes, definitely. As, uh, I think throughout my years, Jason, as in building software and being a software entrepreneur, I now very much regard myself as a bit of a one-trick pony in the sense that knows how to build software for e-commerce brands or for people that sell stuff online. And uh, you know, WooCommerce is definitely that that genesis where I just learned a lot about working with other businesses that have goods and sometimes other things or physical goods at least, but physical goods to, to sell online. Love it. So you were the co-founder and CEO of WooCommerce. Clearly WooCommerce as it's, I think it is now and has been for some time, the number one deployed e-commerce platform in the world, or as a, it's a really actually a plugin to WordPress. But, uh, but yeah, definitely a very popular e-commerce platform. But what many people may not know is that's not the only technology that you have worked on. You're founder of Public Beta. You're also the founder of CM Commerce, which was previously called Conversio before its acquisition by CM Group in August of 2019. You have this long, illustrious history building technology, and you're back at it again now, building technology that really revolves around commerce, full stop. Yes, and I think that's an interesting proposition, Jason, in terms of deciding why to build again and what to build again. For me, it's really came down to ultimately harnessing and leveraging the things that I'd learned before, which is why I've stuck to building for a single type of persona. Or when I say single type of persona, I think the kind of WooCommerce's arc was very much us starting to build WordPress templates back in the day. And that's evolved into us having the question or asking the question, like, hey, how do we add a shopping cart to this? WordPress-based site used by a business, they are starting to move into commerce. How do we add a shopping cart to that? So the site, that's how simple it was back then. But you learn things, you learn about the other businesses that use your software, and then it becomes easier, both from a kind of knowledge and experience standpoint, but also just from a relationship standpoint. I think, if I remember correctly, during the last stages of my CEO tenure at Woo, before I stepped down, we did some work with Shopify, for example, and I worked very closely with Harley Finkelstein. And this was timeline here back in 2013. So Shopify was, they were growing, they were growing fast. It was not the Shopify that everyone knows today. And when I 
We started working on Converge. It was first called Receiptful in the year after that. I needed a favor. We needed to build something because we'd already built a WooCommerce integration. Shopify couldn't support what we were doing in the product. And Harley kind of helped out by giving us access to an early API on their side that not everyone within the ecosystem had access to. And those kind of things, serendipitous or not, there is a case to be made for how one thinks about kind of relationships. And then I think the other story that I will tell about relationships and how that spans across multiple businesses, but ultimately a bigger period of time is in within Convergio, our kind of beyond Clavio and MailChimp, they were massive incumbents by the time we had even started. And I think with Clavio, at least MailChimp, they've gone slightly different direction, not commerce specific. They got acquired by Intuit for incredible amounts of money. But the other kind of competitor in Clavio, like they are by far the market leader today. But alongside Convergio, there's another company called Omnisend. And I know this because I was very close to the founders at that time, especially over there. And they were about similar size to Convergio. And they've today they've lapped us and they've built an incredible business. Convergio, as you mentioned, got acquired. But as I share the story today, Ritas, as a kind of previous competitor, is a shareholder on my business. He invested in our kind of pre-seed round. So I think point being there is there are so many things that has felt a kind of no-brainer for me going from business to business that it just made sense to to stick in the ecosystem versus trying my hand at something completely different and alien to at least my experience and my skills and my network. And I guess what this alludes to is the powerful foundations, friendships, professional colleagues, whatever you want to call them, this rising star, your rising star in the constellation of commerce, really, we have a very small ecosystem. We like to think of it as big. Those of us that have been doing this for a long time, I've been doing it for over 20 years. You've been doing it for a very long time as well. We build up our friendships. We build up our professional, I guess, associations and colleagues and, and businesses where we might have partners or clients or tech tech partnerships, whatever the case may be. And so we, by definition, because we work in the space, we feel like it's massive and it's giant and everything else. But the reality of e-commerce is still such a teeny tiny percentage of A, overall retail around the world, case leading the world, the Western world anyway, and just over 30% as a percentage of total retail. So still not even 50% of total retail is e-commerce. And then when we look at the broader ecosystem of all business and B2B, et cetera, e-commerce is very small. And then even e-commerce as a subset of IT, which for a long time, many people considered e-commerce the sort of redheaded stepchild of IT. And so we were the rogues, right? The rogues of IT. And we're still a very tiny subset of IT as well. And so we think that we're very large ecosystem. And relatively speaking, it is a large ecosystem. And more importantly, it's growing very quickly, but off of a very small base. But to your point, obviously, Harvard Finkelstein being the president of Shopify and being very well placed in the overall ecosystem and some of the other names that you were able to mention there, very large luminaries in our ecosystem, very well known. And it still comes down to relationships, I guess, if I was to boil this down into a nutshell, I wouldn't be who I am today in this ecosystem without all of the friends and all of the colleagues and all of the relationships that I've built over the last 20 years. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have the lifestyle that I have loving what I do every single day without those people who are foundational to my success. And I guess that sounds like it's true for, even though obviously you're a much bigger luminary in our ecosystem than I am, it sounds like you went through a very similar journey. Yes, and I, but I think that there's the part that I would somewhat disagree with, Jason, is that I'm not sure that this is to our ecosystem, right? I think what I'll add to it in support of what you said is that as soon as you start 
investing in the space and early stage opportunities and you start seeing like who who's sharing deals who's on the cap table like who's helping out then you see you get a further sense of how small the ecosystem or at least how intimate the kind of ecosystem is at stage so there's definitely those characteristics i just think that kind of your broad and i Speaking out loud here, I wonder how much of this goes back to my WordPress and WooCommerce days of kind of where we were working with open source. And I think open source has this mentality around it that you're always going to be friends before you're going to be enemies. You're always going to collaborate to build a bridge versus kind of burning a bridge down. And I think to that extent, like you just never know when you're going to need a friend. And that sounds, I don't mean that to say that you should have friendships for that rainy day when you need them. I think I definitely have various different types of friendships, like those that I keep in close, very close contact with, those that I see often, those that I share my kind of heart desires and biggest problems with, and others that are more, say, professional friends. Like we see each other every now and again. If we do manage to meet up at a conference, we'll hang out, etc. But it's just been key for me to, I think, to not burn bridges. And there's also a kind of evolution and a maturation in that. I think the kind of the 80 from 2008, 2009, 2010, like the early kind of in the earlier WordPress and WooCommerce days, I was quite a bit of a firefighter, especially online. And today, like, it's just, my perspective is just totally different. It's just, how can I, when I say something, whether it's on Twitter or LinkedIn, how can I, even if I don't disagree, how can I say something that's positive? Like, how can I add value to a conversation or ecosystem without just removing value? I think there's the, for me, that's just a kind of a mental model that I've tried to keep in mind. As I said, like, I think the parts of it then goes back to open sources. This is not a zero-sum game. I think the rising tide lifts all boats. And when we are all winning to a certain extent, yes, some of us will win more than others, right? Some of us will perhaps IPO a company, others of us won't. That's perfectly fine, but we're all still winning. And I think that progresses a whole ecosystem and a greater society forward. And I want to be part of that motion. Absolutely admirable, and I, I couldn't agree more. But what's interesting is you've evolved your software delivery model or your, even your software development model, at least as, as far as I can tell, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, with Cogsy because now you're an end-to-end -end SaaS platform. So you're not an open source platform like what WordPress and WooCommerce, et cetera, are. You've now evolved the way that you build software, the way that you deliver software, and it's more in line with where I see most software platforms going today. The software is eating the world, but what I would say as a corollary to that is that SaaS software is eating the world. And we see the, I guess the fall is probably too harsh of a word there, but certainly Magento open source for many years dominated the e-commerce ecosystem, particularly for the mid-market, and now under the stewardship of Adobe, obviously, it's got those open source roots, certainly taking it very much more upmarket, upstream into the enterprise space. And perhaps some could argue walking away to a degree from its open source roots, from its community roots, and going more enterprise, going more proprietary, at least in thinking, if not delivery. And so it's interesting to watch our industry evolve over the last 20 years. If we start thinking of Cogsy, I'm guessing, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, that Cogsy came out of the idea of cost of goods sold, and then you added a Y on the end. I could be completely wrong there. But because what you're trying to achieve with Cogsy is to help brands understand demand planning better, and there's a whole bunch more things that you do other than that. But really, if we boil it down, some of the core features and functions and fundamental way that Cogsy operates is 
helping brands understand and execute on-demand planning better, particularly as if they're young in the e-commerce space. Yeah, so all of that is spot on. You're spot on about the name as well, Jason. I think the kind of, I just want to take a quick step back and to kind of what you said about open source. I think, and I say this as a kind of, you're getting into the WordPress space back in the day, like open source was something that we, Magnus, Mark and I, my, my co-founders, we fell into and we got better at over time. And it definitely has, I would say, if your mental model or attitude at least that you have to take to thrive in there, and I don't think it's suited for every business. What is interesting in that sense is when you're open source and like you're thriving, the community you build around your business is the kind of the envy of most. And if you have a look today at how many different kind of your software companies are talking about air quotes, building a community, I do wonder how much they could benefit if they were open sourcing part of it. And yes, that kind of community, it's not necessarily customers of your software then, it is contributors. And I think what we and WordPress especially got right was the users were also sometimes the developers, right? Like they they could wield the power of committing code and actually using the kind of the product. And again, like, so I don't think that it's a, a model that suits everyone, but if from the heuristic of ask yourself, like, how do I create a community around my product? That was a fascinating way to to build that community i thought i would just mention that because i think that community is often thrown around at least in my spaces these days and brands would love to build a community around their companies and offerings for for cogsia at least is yes i was for years i cogsia is actually the kind of an idea that i had probably about halfway through convergio where my team and i, I think we had realized that we were building a bit of a Me Too product at that stage in a space. I mentioned Mailchimp, Klaviyo, especially Omnisend was thriving as well. And I don't think like we wanted to innovate. And I ultimately went back to the kind of where I had this idea for building a better inventory management system. And the two parts of that's not always evident is a, I studied accounting at university. I've got an accounting degree. My dad drilled accounting principles into me as a kid. For every debit, there's a credit. Why the nature of materiality and financial kind of statements is a joke, etc. Like he had all these very specific opinions that forms a big part of my armor today. But that's the one note that I you know, drew on. And then for the last you know, six, seven years, my wife also ran a local e-commerce business, which she sold to a local PE fund recently. And I was always her kind of tech and financial co-pilot in the business. And I just saw how hard it is to run the greater operations of the business. So anything from the accounting through to inventory management, through to your forecasting and demand planning, which they didn't even get into. And my bigger hard moment was there were tools available. Most of them were very clunky, right? They had to build very wide products. And then the other part was as a small team that didn't have a specialist demand planner, I just knew that they would not be able to wield the power of these very sophisticated solutions out there. So when I eventually got back to the idea of Cogsy during towards the end of my stint with Campaign Monitor post that convergence acquisition, the thinking really was instead of building an inventory management system, which is a very wide product to build just to get to feature parity compared to kind of incumbents, we would instead just start carving off this optimization and intelligence layer that can sit on top of those things or on top of an inventory management system or directly on top of your e-commerce platform. And we would add value optimization in that way. 
love the thinking niching down is a superpower and it feels very much like you have honed in on this area of optimization opportunity but it also has elements that tell me jason this is crazy no you're way off base here but it's certainly as and i've never used cogsy before so i'll be honest and, and transparent about that i haven't used it yet haven't had an opportunity to use it yet or really install it on a shopify store test it out but it feels very much like something akin to Inventory Planner, which of course was acquired by Bright Pearl, which itself was acquired by Sage. So it has been swallowed by the Borg of Sage, but certainly Inventory Planner had a very narrow scope for its life and intentionally had a very narrow scope, but it had a similar goal overall if we were to take it on, a, on at face value, which is forecasting, purchasing, reporting. So being able to bring elements of demand planning to these small and medium-sized size businesses on Shopify and really being able to give them insights and intelligence into stock handling and stock holding that allowed them to operate more like the big boys, certainly not completely like the big boys, because if you really want to do proper demand planning, it really needs to sit inside of an ERP or in broader systems that touch other areas of the business other than just e-com. But if we look at e-com as a silo, as a business on its own, or perhaps it's a D2C brand that they only do e-commerce, then obviously tools like Cogsy, like Inventory Planner, they are point solutions and they need to be point solutions because the demographic that you're targeting needs very affordable, very effective point solutions to grow their business. So yes, I think the my surprising learning from the last 18 or so months working on Cox Jason is that you know, the best brands, they don't use ERPs anymore. And they're they also don't use any solutions for demand planning. They prefer their spreadsheets. In fact, when you've had a kind of a demand planner on your team that's previously spent time, say, at a Unilever, then went to a kind of a phase one DTC darling like a Wobby Parker or away luggage and is now working you know, with a kind of you growing 10 20 million dollar a year kind of DTC brand they still have the same spreadsheet that they were using at Unilever and they prefer to do planning that way I am not bullish on enterprise level planning solutions so I'll say that firstly the second yeah. thing that surprised me was that again like I mentioned for Cogsy my original thinking was like this should be an IMS and like an IMS and an ERP has great overlap in terms of functionality, right? ERP is just more financially geared. And I think the buyer persona generally tends to be the financial controller in a business, right? So all of the accounting, bookkeeping, like financial management related functionality is much better and evolved in ERP compared to an IMS. What we're actually finding is that so many kind of you know, growing brands that already sell multi-channel. So it's not e-commerce only. It might have been what's a digitally native, vertically integrated brands, whatever. But e-commerce first, perhaps. But what we're finding is they have a very decentralized tech stack these days, i.e. they don't have that single source of truth like an ERP that sits on top of all their sales channels. In fact, what Cogsy now often does for our customers, because again, like that setup, by the way, is a much easier one for Cogsy to add value to, right? Like we have a single integrations with your source of truth, and then we can add your optimization, intelligence value on top of that. Bob's your uncle. But what we've actually found is the tech stack for these kind of retail brands, I'll use retail brands more broadly, is much more decentralized. So we often work with brands where we are integrating with their sales channels, i.e. a Shopify sell direct, Amazon, where they do FBA, then we integrate with their 3PL because that's where their latest and most up-to-date inventory levels are. And then we integrate with something like Anvil, which is the, where their purchase orders live. And then 
it's on us to then be that cohesive thread. And we, to some extent at least, like we don't sell ourselves as this because I don't think we're there, but we become that system of record for those brands in that decentralized tech stack where we are mapping and correlating those important bits together to ultimately get you to a forecast, a demand plan that you can then operationalize. So I think that's a key difference for us. You mentioned inventory planner. Yes, on the kind of the towards the lower end of the market, I think they are a great alternative to and the incumbent in our space, right? And plus, I'm not the kind of person to to criticize alternative solutions or competitors, at least publicly or privately. They have picked up some strife, it sounds like, from post-acquisition. There's definitely a post-acquisition playbook that is at play there. And they seem uh-huh. to have a few gruntled users that are seeking out solutions like Cogsy. But... If I were just to compare Cogsy to them, beyond the fact that we've optimized ourselves for the, I think, personally, I think for the future of what retail will look like. And I, I've done this both in Cogsy as well as when I've written investment checks into early stage companies. Is I believe in that decentralized tech stack going forward. And I think that will continue to happen because brands are picking the best in class tools for every part of their business. And they need those, whether it's connectors, whether it's bridges, whether it's kind of consolidation or kind of apps that can consolidate these data streams, they need those as well going forward. And I don't see that slowing down. But beyond those things, I think the key thing that I did not want to do with Cogsy is I didn't want to build a spreadsheet on steroids. I think the spreadsheet has many weaknesses in terms of when you think about demand planning or inventory management, might you think about human having to run calculations, especially when your data sets get big, having to include multiple data sources there. So it has all those weaknesses. The one, like the massive advantage that it has is it has the most flexible UI and UX. So user interface and kind of user experience in the world, which is why spreadsheets get used for so many different things. Like you can customize your model and what you ultimately see as user to the nth degree. And yes, that's maybe not sustainable, right? And yes, if it's your spreadsheet and you leave the business and you need to hand it over to someone else, there's no redundancy built in and there's some kind of succession planning that's missing there. But for younger software to catch up to that is way too much work, right? Like I can't build a UI that is as flexible quickly enough for that to be compelling. So I don't want to bet on something that ultimately it's not a spreadsheet, but it looks like a spreadsheet. And I'm essentially allowing you to just add various kind of columns and rows to a table. That's to me, that's not interesting. And to me, that does not build a category defining product, which is what we're trying to do with Cogsy. And I love the fact that you talked about almost going down that composable route, because we're certainly, I think the buzzwords of 2021 and possibly 2022 as well are headless and composable. And certainly I think that, I think that commerce has always been composable to a degree, perhaps maybe not as composable as today, but certainly there was very rarely, I can't think of a time in the last 20 years where one single platform could do absolutely everything from operational systems to transactional systems and everything in between. We've always had composable stacks with best of breed components plugged into each other and integrated with one another. But to your point, I think that's becoming a little bit even diffuse. It's probably becoming more extrapolated out. We've got more components We've got more niching down of these individual components. And so that's where something like Cogsy comes into play. And presumably when I look at the when I look at the the integrations that you've got listed on your website there, presumably that's one of the reasons why Linworks is such a, a, integra- a key integration partner for you, because as a as an iPass platform, it allows them to then be a more universal connector for your platform as opposed to you having to go out and write 
connectors for every e-commerce platform out there, every ERP, every IMS out there, every OMS, every WMS out there. It allows you now to be able to, via one iPaaS platform, or at least for everybody that uses Linworks, to be able to connect to all their other systems as required. And presumably, you will continue to build out because at the moment, you connect into kind of the biggest endpoints of the commerce ecosystem, the Shopify's, the Amazon's, the Skubana, the Shipbobs, but the Sin7's of the world. But even to your point, even Sin7 is, is not what I would consider a true ERP because it doesn't have its own financials built in. It integrates usually with zero to handle the financial components. And so it itself is more diffuse than a traditional ERP. So we are seeing this bifurcation starting to happen in the market where ERPs, like even your NetSuites of the world, are trying to increase their functionality. They're trying to build themselves out as a suite of components or a suite of modules that you can pick and choose in an a la carte way that then you can build out effectively from this ERP base to take over other key functions within a business as and where it makes sense. But typically you deploy NetSuite at least as an ERP and a CRM and then build from there. But these other endpoints that you've built out, so for Anvil, for Flex, GA, Locate, et cetera, these are smaller pieces of the pie that, as you rightly point out, are typically more isolated. They're more siloed. They are, you don't necessarily have the intelligence unless you're running something like Power BI and it's integrated with all these different systems or you're running some sort of BI tool that connects with all these systems that brings intelligence to the business. We're now starting to see point level intelligence systems come into play because A, they're quicker and easier for people like you to go out and develop and attack a very specific problem that merchants are having, it allows you to attack it with speed and scale and momentum. And it allows you to plug that gap really quickly versus if you're going out there to try to build an ERP or you're going out there to try to build an OMS. So this feels very much certainly can't see the large enterprises getting away from ERP anytime soon. I don't see any of the really big companies moving away from ERPs as the beating heart of the financial heart of the business at the very least. But certainly for SMBs and even maybe mid-enterprise, I am seeing the exact same sort of thing that you are seeing, which is a complete reticence to implement very expensive, very time-consuming ERP systems as the beating heart of the business. Exactly right. So because I don't think anybody ever wants to kind of, you know, buy a suite of tools, Jason. I think as any buyer of tech, you're normally buying one or two things and then you don't want to be forced into a suite. And I think that's probably the biggest, that's the biggest criticism I hear of NetSuite. And I think that kind of just NetSuite specifically, and again, like NetSuite last time I checked, eight, nine billion dollar market cap. So they've also done fantastically well. This is not just a difference in opinion about how they do things, but the way that those implementations ultimately work is that you as the kind of company using NetSuite, you're building so many specific add-ons to your business on top of that, that it isn't really a pure software play in that to that extent anymore right so you need to have internal you know core competencies around how do you maintain those kind of your add-ons or things you've built for your business or you need to be spending kind of your annual budget on an external you know consultancy or freelancer to keep those things up to date so i think that really puts it in a whole different bucket i would bet that if there was a better net suite available today like and that's what someone tried to build i think even the big brands would ultimately switch. I think it's just a hard, like someone just needs a lot of money in the bank to be able to build all of those things. And then the other thought that I had here was just around kind of headless and composable. Like I, I'm personally not enamored with the idea of a headless front end. I think most brands that think they, that convince themselves they need 
the headless front end should be spending their time and money elsewhere. Like this does not seem to be the priority. I think we're talking about very marginal gains for a lot of kind of you know, friction and cost. But what I would add is I, and again, like I might come off as a little bit biased, but I don't think this is entirely untrue, which is WordPress, and especially if you add WooCommerce for, for card functionality, was always that. It was the least opinionated backend that also controlled the front end, right? So I am well-versed enough to understand that the true promise of a kind of a headless in terms of front end is at least the system that controls your backend does not dictate your front end. And that's, was, that's not the case with WordPress, right? WordPress does have its own templating language, but it was always the most open because you could also, like, if you wanted to, to the nth degree, just hack into the code and do with it whatever you wanted. Plus, if you take like all of the extensions, all of those extensions, the original add-ons in the WooCommerce ecosystem, they plug directly into your WordPress and WooCommerce admin. So they were extending the core, i.e. like composable, right? Like you can use whatever Lego bricks you wanted to build whatever kind of your silly little house that you wanted to build. So I think that they're, the reason why it's more popular kind of now is the solutions are just sexier, right? It's not a plugin that you need to download and install somewhere. You can actually now buy pure SaaS solutions and plug it into your tech stack and ultimately compose what that tech stack looks like and to what extent you use all of those different tools that you are putting together. And I think if I take a step back, like the macro pattern for me here is that the best brands are like, yes, there's some best practices, Right, that everyone is adhering to in their businesses. But for the rest of it, they are remixing things exponentially so compared to the past. And I think it especially comes down to the operational bits in their business. They're remixing how they run their businesses and the software they need to follow those remixing decisions they've already made. Couldn't agree more. I think that's it's making the world a very exciting place for consultants like myself that are also longtime senior solution architects. It's breathing new life. We had some very common design patterns, whether your preference was SaaS, whether your preference was on-prem, whether your preference was, was PaaS. We had some very common design patterns for commerce that emerged over the last, say, 10 years. But certainly now, I think there's a lot more point solutions that can get componentized functionality done quicker, more efficiently, and certainly the emergence of SaaS as part of these point solutions with very well-documented, very well, very robust API layers, and then having an integration middleware that is the orchestration layer that makes all of these systems be able to talk to each other and share data. Certainly that is is becoming a lot more common. I would 100% agree with you there. And it is certainly bringing some new challenges to the way that we think as solution architects, where we had maybe our favorite design patterns and our favorite components and our favorite stacks, because we knew them inside out. We knew they've worked very well. We had done enough deployments on them to know that they were robust and they could achieve a certain result with the high levels of predictability and de-risking a project. But to your point, I think now with the absolute explosion of point-level SaaS solutions combined with custom solutions built on something like Airtable, I think that solution architecture is becoming super interesting again. And it's certainly anything but boring because now instead of having maybe one or two or three go-to solutions for a specific function or requirement or challenge, you might now have 20, right? And so becoming versed in all of these options, becoming very well-versed in all these components, making sure you do your due diligence, make sure you do your research, make sure you do your testing. All those things have led to a place now where senior solution architects that, that have a lot, many years of experience, it's really, it's bringing new challenges to what we do 
on a daily basis as well. And that, that keeps our jobs interesting, right? Nobody wants to deploy the same design patterns forever in a day, even if there are better things out there, at least people with credibility in the market. And I'd like to think I'm one of those. We like to see what is actually going to work the best for a merchant as opposed to something that we've implemented and done a hundred times before. Entirely. And I like, I'll flip that back to you as a question, Jason, like how do you, with this proliferation of options that are available, how do you keep up to date to essentially be able to make those decisions that says this year, we've got 20 options here for this customer of ours, which is the best given whatever the criteria is, whether it's just from a needs base, whether it's, hey, they've already got these other three things in their tech stack that they're not willing to change if we introduce something new for XYZ. Like, how do you keep that up to date? Because I think like two things tend to happen within the e-commerce space at the moment, which is brands either flock to the newest, shiniest thing, which normally means they have the founders and or marketing team that, that shouts the loudest, and they just assume kind of attention and noise means that this is a great solution, which it often is, right? There's strong correlation there. Or I think they get stuck in almost a bit of an analysis paralysis where they have a need and they don't need, they don't yet know that they can actually solve, solve for that need. And they get stuck in that kind of purgatory of what we have right now is not ideal. There might, we know about these three names that could help us, but I have no way of bridging my present to my future where I might have a different solution. Yeah, look, it, it is absolutely a, ch a challenge. And I think that's where credibility of someone who's actually been there and done that as opposed to simply pontificating. So we have a lot of people in our industry, I wouldn't say a lot, but there, there are certainly a number of people in our industry who perhaps, for example, have only ever worked agency side, or perhaps they've only ever worked merchant side, or maybe they've only ever worked vendor side. And so I think until you've seen our industry through the lenses of two or three of those different sort of buckets of areas of our industry that you can work in, I think until you've seen it, until you've lived it, it's very difficult for you to develop the empathy, the knowledge and the experience to have credibility with a merchant, to have those really hard discussions with them. I think it's really hard to do. And I think for me, one of the reasons why I like to think I've been successful as a consultant is because I've had a lot of experience agency side with the more, I guess, what we call the theoretical side in terms of solutioning and discovery and all that stuff. But I've also had enough experience doing the actual heavy lifting, helping with implementations, all the way from architecture to delivery and into post live in a merchant environment. For example, the last major retailer that I worked for as an employee inside the business, as an e-commerce manager, over the period of five years, we replatformed every single piece of technology in the business. So new ERP, new C we never had a CRM. We implemented a CRM. We implemented, implemented a PIM system. We, did, we, we implemented a new WMS. We did omni-channel integration with a retail store um, and pause system. And we replatformed our marketing automation platform and we replatformed loyalty. And it was just, we basically replatformed absolutely almost every single piece of technology in the business over this period of time. And so uh, in, instead of just pontificating about what is likely to be able to work and understanding what's involved in that level of change management, I've actually lived it. I've lived it as a merchant. And so I think I'd like to think that when I was doing some of the due diligence on some of the technologies that we were considering at the time for each component and each stage of this program of work over five years, that gave me a real level of empathy and understanding for the challenges that face merchants when they're staring down the barrel of just a technical ecosystem that is utterly overwhelming in every way. Every single component and every single function, there is several options available. And so 
having to do this as a merchant and to having to deliver a program of work that was actually functional at the end of the day and shepherd the business through that level of change management, it has given me so much empathy and so much understanding that I think I can speak from a position of authority in ways that that if I'd only ever worked agency side, for example, that I just would never be able to have those discussions at that high level. Empathy really resonates there, Jason. I think what I'll add here and then I'll then we can move on. I think what I've learned in the last 15, 16 years building software is that software founders and software teams are really great at selling and they're really great at hyping the stuff that they build, right? That's how it's supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think if you have a look at software today versus 10, 20 years ago, we've also developed these really robust kind of playbooks and methodologies in terms of how you sell and how you market things. And I think when I, and I've never been a merchant, but the closest experience that I had there was when I was that kind of tech and financial co-pilot in, in my wife's business, which in other words means I was an unpaid consultant, but I like I just seen how many software providers, like they, they use very technological terms. They overhype artificial intelligence and the value of machine learning and all these things where I know that they're underneath the kind of your, the kind of your surface for those products. Those things don't add material value. Yes, they're involved in the greater offering, but they don't add material value. But when a product is marketed as such, there is ultimately more noise that needs to be cut through for the buyer, like for the company, for the brand that's eventually going to use that, which also doesn't make their decision easier, right? Because you're effectively just, you can't just buy a promise, right? Like to your point, like when you, true empathy means like across the board, like like how does this new thing that I'm proposing here fit into what is already going on in the business, right? Whether it's from a tech tax perspective, whether it's from an operational commercial perspective, if one doesn't have, whether from a human perspective, if you don't have that empathy, there's no way, I think, to cut through all this sales and marketing noise, regardless of how good it is. And I think there's also got to be a recognition that there is perhaps more than one way to achieve a similar outcome. When I when I go in and I'm when I'm consulting, we're tech and operational consultants. We don't do marketing, and we don't, we're not marketing consultants in that way. So we focus very much on on people, process, tech, and data. That's really our core competencies. And so when we go in, we have an open mind in the sense that we never go in with this fixed mentality of what's going to work for this business at a surface level until we do this deep discovery, until we get under the kimono and we actually see how the business operates, what its existing business processes look like, what its existing organizational design looks like. Typically, if you go in and you want to radically change the organizational design of a business because you think it would make them more efficient, you're pushing crap uphill. And similar to process design, right? You might think with these tweaks here, we could dramatically make you more efficient. But if it means total disruption to the business, sometimes it's better to try to adapt and translate some of those more analog processes into digital equivalents wherever we can, as opposed to getting them to adapt their processes. Sometimes it's better to say, okay, how can we translate these processes into digital equivalents? So there has to be a give and a take there, but I think it's the humility to know that despite the fact that I've been in this industry for over 20 years, I don't know it all and I'll never know it all. And there's more than one right way to achieve a great outcome for a merchant, and I may not know all of those right ways to achieve great outcome for those merchants, but I definitely know, based on my experience, some ways in which we can figure that out. So it's how can I help them de-risk the outcome of a failed project? Because failed projects are disastrous 
for morale. They're disastrous financially for companies. And so how can we, instead of trying, a favorite phrase of mine, I hate to try to boil the ocean in a project. So how can we break these up in as many bite-sized pieces as possible so it's a little bit more digestible for the business, so it's not quite so disruptive for the business? And how can we effectively road, roadmap this out over two, three, four, five years where we ultimately get you where you want to be, but it's not, it just doesn't destroy the business in the process. Because I tell you, I've been part of very large monolithic projects in the past and some very successful, some not so successful. And certainly from to my way of thinking and based on my experience, it's how can we make this as digestible as possible for the business in everything that we do. Exactly right, which is a favorite kind of mantra within software as well, which is you can you you build your MVP and you just you incrementally improve things from there. Like no significant software solution in the world, even if it's a combination of different things, was built overnight. It all happens incrementally because it's, it is absolutely impossible to your you're using your words to boil the ocean. That's simply just not how software works. Like you can't just add a hundred more engineers or people to to work towards this process. That in itself might accelerate some parts thereof but it entirely does not guarantee your your success at the end of that project. Completely agree. It is, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. There is a decreasing rate of return with scale, right? There's definitely economies of scale, but then there's also decreasing rates of return with scale. And certainly, as you rightly pointed out, with software, you could add 100 engineers tomorrow, or if you're a meta or you're whatever, then of course you can buy as many engineers as you like. With those engineers comes a hugely added overhead of potential tech debt, of managing these engineers, of scaling projects and being able to even make them productive within any reasonable amount of time within the business. And then without, and then we've got the human element, right? We've got a hundred engineers potentially stepping on the toes of the other hundred engineers that are working on a similar project or the same project within the business. So I still think it really comes down to people at the end of the day. And for me, what I'm trying to do when I go in and I'm working with the business, and this is probably getting a little bit off topic of Cogsy, but I think it's I think it's relevant because when I go in, there's always the people component is the most complex piece, right? Because oftentimes when I'm going in and I'm working with a client, the particularly the focus on B2B that I have, oftentimes a sales team, a field sales reps, whatever, that sales team will feel incredibly threatened by anything related to e-commerce, right? And so it's how do we show them that we can dramatically decrease the admin overheads of them doing their job so that we can free them up to do things that they actually enjoy doing and building relationships with their customers and bringing true value to their customers. And so it's about showing them, I don't know a single salesperson on the planet that likes doing admin. And so if we can show them a pathway to where we're not going to take away their business, we're not going to take away their income, but we're going to make their, their life a hell of a lot easier. And we're going to take away a lot of the, the heavy lifting from the administrative side of the business. We're going to make them more efficient overall as a business then those are the types of conversations that salespeople love having. So I think it's about having empathy for the people that you encounter in the business who are the decision makers, but also who sits downstream of the decision makers. Who in the business is going to create friction to adopting this new stack or this new technology or this new approach? Who is going to provide internal friction to that and internal pushback? And can we deal with that before it turns into friction? Because that friction inevitably will spill over into other departments. It will become poison, poured into people's ears, at the water cooler, and that's just the way humans work. And so I think with your technology in particular, this is, again, it is one of those types of technologies that is almost forgotten about unless you are you either have someone in your business that's mature enough to understand that demand planning is absolutely mission critical to running an efficient business, 
or they get religion or perhaps they've taken on some funding, their DDC brand or whatever, and they are being forced from outside in to have a level of financial and operational rigor that they would never have any other way. And so I think from your perspective, I see Cogsy as an absolute operational necessity for so many businesses out there. So I, yes, I want to touch on kind of the, the human part first, uh, Jason, I think when I build software, at least I always believe that like I, I'm a bit of a contrarian on the trend of how artificial intelligence and robots and whatnot will eventually take over everything we do. I think it will always be a collaboration between human and machine. And especially with Cogsy, like that's probably where I've most or had the greatest clarity around what that actually means, right? So whilst we have AI and ML components to the product, the idea is always that a human is on the other side using this and getting value from this. And I think that's important. I didn't I, Cogsy should not replace human beings ever. That's not the goal here. And so your second point is, yes, I believe, especially this is now, like we did not start building Cogsy in a tricky macroeconomic time. But I think back then I was, I had already high conviction about why this is important. And I think where we're at today, like that is even more important. And I think what I would ultimately kind of present to, to, to brands and operators here is two different things, which is the one is, so many businesses don't have their unit economics dialed in, whether it's anything from, they probably have it for their marketing data. I think there's been so much advancement in terms of the tools that one uses in one's marketing stack. I think most brands have a good sense of if I spend a dollar, this is what I'm getting out on the other side and this is what it means for my business. But anything that kind of happens below the line, so i.e. that's not revenue related, I don't think that they always have a great kind of view, a finger on that pulse, which means that if those numbers aren't in a good place right now, or if things happen and they change, that is a really adverse situation for the business to find itself in. So really dialing in those numbers, I think is going to become more, more key than ever, whether it's just cogs, whether it's an expanded uh, kind of definition of what those numbers are, I think that's going to be more important. And then the second part that we're trying to get to with Cogsy at least is I doubt that there's any that there's any algorithm that anyone can develop out there that predicts the future, right? So when we talk about you know, inventory needs and optimal inventory levels and whatnot, I think a programmatic kind of forecast can get you closer to the answer. It, the answer is never perfect. What I think is more important is having the systems in place in your business that allows you to act proactively in the most kind of flexible and smartest manner when your situation changes, i.e. like when you previously had facts and those facts about your business, about your kind of your great community society, the economy changes, like how do you adapt to that? And I think, I think we, Cogsy has worked with loads of brands this year, for example, that kind of overcorrected for their supply chain issues in 2010 and 2021, where they've now been sitting in overstock positions, which yes, Stockouts is not a challenge for them this year, but all of the related costs to having cash tied up into that inventory, the additional costs of financing that, storing that, et cetera, like that is a drag on the business where the business could have otherwise accelerated and grown in a much better way. And I use better there because better, I don't measure growing better just in terms of, hey, this is what revenue did. I really want to understand this is what gross margin looks like. This is what the change in gross margin kind of looks like. This is what net profit ultimately looks like. Because I think those are your key questions that when I build a business that I want to ask myself in terms of, am I growing better 
this this month, this quarter, this year compared to a previous period? You hit the nail on the head. And look, I think the value prop of Cogsy is crystal clear. It says it directly on your website. Predictable inventory management for Shopify merchants and Amazon sellers. Stockouts cost retailers circa $1 trillion every year. Don't know where that particular statistic comes from, but I, even for me, that is absolutely mind-blowing. And with Cogsy, never go out of stock. Generate 40% more revenue and save 20 plus hours a week managing your inventory. That is a pretty impressive, functional, I guess, an operational promise to make. It's, the value prop is very clear. Is there anything today that, for example, your customers are asking for you functionally in Cogsy that you don't deliver today that you say, hey, we either don't do this at all today or we don't do it maybe to the level I'd like us to. Sometime in the next 12, 18 months, we're going to add this functionality. We're going to significantly improve this functionality based on the feedback we're getting from our merchant. Yeah, that's a good question, Jason. I think we're, the things we're working on at the moment and that we will take us into 2023 is really expanding functionality for brands that sell multi-channel and often have multiple inventory locations. So the kind of, and you alluded to that in, in reading our kind of your H1 there, but the simplest example is their brand sells directly via Shopify, has their own warehouse, single warehouse, and they also sell via Amazon and EA, which means they've got two different inventory locations and they need to make sure that they balance inventory across both those locations to continue selling well. So what we're building towards there is really enabling brands to prioritize inventory in a scarce environment. Because I think there are often second order effects where you need to consider if I'm going to stock out on one of my channels, which of those channels should I stock out first? Where do I reserve functionality? We're working on some interesting things with regards to subscriptions very soon, which where the kind of hypothesis is, if you don't have stock to renew a subscription for a customer, that's probably the most likely reason for them to churn. Why do we, like, why have a subscription for a consumer good if the company can't fulfill your subscription based on your kind of chosen cadence? So we're working on stuff there. And then everything beyond that, I think the ordering is TVC, where we ultimately see ourselves in three, four, five years time is to be the lightweight, easy to use, fun to use, ERP for modern retail brands. Like that is ultimately where we are moving ourselves towards. And the key difference for us compared to others in the space that perhaps have a similar vision is just that we want to be ubiquitous across your data stack. So if you wanted to use another modern-ish ERP alongside Cogsy, and there's certain functions within Cogsy that you don't want to use, you should be able to do that because that fits your business better. We will never sell you a complete suite of here's 10 things that Cogsy can do and you have to use every single thing. If there's a better thing, we will have the integration because we want to ultimately integrate with every single thing in your tech stack that has SKU level data. Wow, what a, what an absolute commitment there. Certainly absolutely amazing commitment. This is a commitment to the ecosystem overall and it really comes back to that level of empathy that you have for your customers and for the ecosystem at large. It's an extremely respectable goal. And look, I know you sounds like you have a very, very good shot of achieving it. It wouldn't be the first time you made massive waves in our industry. So I like your chances of being able to get there. Now, if somebody wants to learn a bit more about Cogsy and it's C-O-G-S-Y, just for everybody that wants to know, is are they best to go to cogsy.com? Are they best to reach out to you directly on LinkedIn? Or how would you prefer that people find out more about your platform or open up a dialogue with you about Cogsy and how it might be able to help their business? 
Yeah, so the website definitely is, like, definitely check out the website. Right? I think we've got a pretty good website. All the information is there. Alternatively, free, like anyone is free to reach me directly on ad at cogsy.com. So ad double i at cogsy.com. I'm very responsive on email, more than happy to help anyone directly. On the website, it is, we've also shifted our kind of go-to-market model. So you can actually just install a free trial, connect your data sources for the first, your first 14 days. So if you want to do that first and then ping me directly and say, AD, please help me figure out like the bits that aren't as obvious for my business, totally down to, to help with that as well. Love it. Now we're coming to the close of our time together and I do appreciate you carving out so much time with me. I know it's very early in the morning for you. I think we kicked off at about 5 a.m. or something crazy like that on your side of the world. But we're now at this the stage of the pod where I turn the microphone over to you. You get the opportunity to ask me one question, any question that you like. Doesn't have to be about business, can be personal, can be whatever you like. So over to AD Pinar from Cogsy. What question do you have for me, mate? Ooh, let's go for something that I don't think another guest would ask you, Jason. You live, I, I'm correcting myself, you live down under, right? Australia or New Zealand, right? I live in Auckland. That's correct. Auckland, New Zealand. Okay. So, so uh, Auckland, New Zealand, n- not a tech hub, right? Not I like not a mainstream city, right? Like uh, I've heard great, this is not prison. I've heard great things about New, New Zealand, but very far removed from using the podcast name from the coalface, right? It's not Silicon Valley. It's not New York. It's not some can you it's not Berlin in terms of kind of startup ecosystems. Why make the decision to to stay there versus perhaps you're moving elsewhere in the world where at least in person there is more economic activity in, in your space? You've hit the nail on the head. We're actually moving to Mexico in February. My wife and I are actually moving to Mexico permanently in Feb. So yeah, look, I love New Zealand. Look, I'm originally from Southern California, born and raised in Southern California, been in New Zealand for the last 25 years. And look, the ecosystem is very tight-knit down here in ANZ, so across Australia and New Zealand. The e-commerce ecosystem down here is extremely tight-knit. It is extremely close. New Zealand, e-commerce in New Zealand is still finding its footing, and we're hovering around that 10% of penetration of retail in, in New Zealand. Australia is much higher. They're sort of 15, 16, 17% of retail in Australia and growing at a much faster rate than we are here in New Zealand. But certainly, community is has always been what has made me love this industry as as much as I do. And uh, the desire to give back, the desire to do the free mentorship program that I do, the podcast that I do, all the things that I do that I give back, they are a labor of love for me to give back to an industry that has given me uh, an amazing lifestyle. It's just, I can't imagine doing anything else in this world, at least right now, I can't imagine doing anything else I've been doing this for a very long time and it's down to the people, it's down to the friendships, it's down to the camaraderie, it's down to the events, it's down to the networking, it's down to the relationships that I've built over that 20 year period. Some of these relationships have turned into very close personal friendships outside of work as well. And I just, I'm not aware of any other industry. I'm sure every industry has its own ecosystem inside of it, but certainly e-commerce is is super fulfilling and the people that work in it in large part they're here to help. They're here to help people grow. They are willing to give of themselves selflessly. And that's the experience I've had. I'm sure there's bad actors just like there are in any industry, but I've witnessed very few of those bad actors in our industry, to be honest. And the people that I've been exposed to have been incredible. And I wouldn't be where I, here where I am without a lot of them. And so that's why I've enjoyed working down in ANZ across this industry. And actually, in some respects, is easier to be a a quote unquote big fish in a small pond than it is to be a very small fish in a very big pond. If I had stayed in America and I hadn't really started my career in America, it would have been very hard to break out and have any kind of name for myself 
in a country as large as that with as many luminaries as that with big names under lights and the Gary V's of the world, et cetera, very difficult to get cut through, much easier to get cut through in a smaller area, right? And I'd like to, to think that's that's been massively beneficial to me and hopefully I've been beneficial to the industry. That's awesome, Jason. I love it. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Look, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. You're clearly an absolutely bright spark. I can understand totally now after speaking with you why you've been as successful as you have. You're, you've clearly got a big heart and you clearly are focused on people, not just tech. And uh, look, I'd love to get you back on another 6, 12, 18 months and see where Cogsy is at that time because it sounds like you've got a very ambitious roadmap on your hands too. We definitely do. And happy to do that, Jason. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Are you a merchant or software vendor that is focused on e-commerce or omni-channel? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to see how we can help you scale your business.